you know, most entrepreneurs, myself included, my risk tolerance is off the charts different from your average person who's looking for security and I'm willing to take risks, big risks. And I think you need to have that to be a successful advertiser or a willingness to stretch in that realm. And if, if that's uncomfortable for you, go get a job and get some security because you know what doesn't have security? Entrepreneurship. You know what has all the pressure in the world? Entrepreneurship. <laughs> What's up and welcome to Start Yours. My name is David Vranikar with Overload. And in this episode, we are talking with an e-commerce rock star, Ezra Firestone. Ezra has been at the forefront of e-commerce and digital marketing. And you know that's the case because he's been doing this since 2005. For context, in 2005, Facebook still called itself the Facebook. So Ezra has indeed been at this for a long, long time. Ezra is the CEO and co-founder of a massive cosmetics line called Boom by Cindy Joseph. He's the CEO and co-founder of Zipify Apps, which makes some awesome apps that you can use on your Shopify store. And he also founded Smart Marketer, which is an industry leader in digital marketing. So that's the resume. And here are some numbers. He oversees Facebook ad campaigns that spend five figures a day, every day. And he expects his various businesses to generate 30 million in revenue this year alone. So we actually got Ezra on the line to break down Facebook ads, but this conversation turned into a lot more than that. Ezra dishes some of his favorite Facebook ad secrets, no doubt, but he also talks about how anyone signing up for this entrepreneurial route better be ready to sign up for a whole bunch of stress and better be ready to give up that nice cozy sense of security that comes with your more conventional jobs but fear not he also talks about how to cope with that stress and how to beat the odds and build yourself a successful online business so come for the tactics stay for the psychology breakdown as always we hope you enjoy the podcast and if you do subscribe to it rate it review it for now just listen to it all right here is ezra firestone one of the reasons that we are so excited to have you on start yours to dork out about facebook advertising is that you have been marketing e-commerce stores since before facebook was even uh, really a big deal so you have this decade plus of experience which is like a century in e-commerce years. And we're gonna dig into that background here in a minute. But before uh, we look back, I wanna start by looking forward and asking you what, what you're most excited about when it comes to Facebook marketing and Instagram marketing in, in 2020. So if that's new tools that are available or trends that you're seeing emerge, new tactics, uh, whatever the case may be, what should people be jazzed about when it comes to uh, to Facebook and Instagram in 2020. Yeah, man, thanks for having me on. And you know, the game has evolved. It's changed a lot. And there's been a real kind of flip upside down in the last 24 months where, you know, when you wanted to scale previously, it was all about um, optimization of your audiences. And you could have kind of one piece of creative that you ran for six months to a year or even longer. And you really just had to dial in the groups of people whom you were putting your uh, ads in front of and now it's completely shifted and now you don't really have to worry about the optimization of placements or audience as you scale because the algorithm is so smart what you have to worry about is the optimization of your creative creative is by far the most important thing in advertising uh, contextual advertising which Facebook and Instagram and YouTube fall under whereas you know, advertising like Google AdWords or Amazon or Pinterest, that's query-based or search-based advertising, which is, you know, where advertising started. It started with search intent and queries. When I got into the game, there was no contextual advertising, i.e. the difference being, you know, with contextual advertising, we have data points on people. So Facebook has thousands of data points on you. They know who you are, what you buy, who your friends are, where you travel. And then we as advertisers can aggregate
aggregate those data points and uh, build groupings of people to put messages in front of. And that that shift in in advertising online is really what made um, you know what really changed how brands can scale because now you don't need to wait for someone to search for something, but it is a bit of a problem because uh, contextual advertising is modern day interruption advertising, much like um, you know ads in newspapers or magazines where someone is reading a magazine or a newspaper and you're interrupting them with an ad. It's it's just the online equivalent of that, and and the problem that that presents is that you have to get good at telling stories, at making videos, at creating ads that are going to be compelling to get people's attention. And I think that's actually really exciting because it can set you apart. If you get good at that, you can be set very, very, very far apart from your competition. As an example, you know, I've got one campaign right now that's spending $22,000 a day on Facebook, top line awareness, getting new people to know about me at a 2x return on ad spend. So I'm having my best performing advertising ever on Facebook in 2020. And that's because of the fact that creative is more important than it's ever been. And I'm really good at storytelling, understanding the, you know, um, desires and experience of my consumers and talking to them about it. Now, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to ask you, you know, the opposite of what I just did. And that'll be what makes you nervous about, about Facebook marketing in 2020. But let's put a pin in that for now. Uh, so I can unpack your your backstory a bit. You mentioned that you've been you've been doing this for a while. So you got into e-commerce. Uh, I believe it was in 2007. Uh, then in, in 2010, you launched uh, Boom by Cindy Joseph, which is a cosmetics line that you helped scale uh, into an absolute powerhouse. And then uh, in 2012, you sold that first store, and really um, you've just kept things rolling ever since. Um, what's crazy though is that by 2012, you'd already racked up you know five years of e-commerce experience, and you were really at the cutting edge of a lot of the channels that that today are just kind of taken for granted. And that's so cool because, you know, understanding the present, I think gets much easier when you, when you understand the past. So I won't ask you to break down, you know, that, that 07 to 12 era year by year, but if you could just kind of give us a snapshot of what, of what digital marketing was like back in those days, what were the core components of a, of a really good, you know, 2010 uh, paid marketing mix? Yeah, man, I actually got into the game in 05. I was selling cheese on Commission okay. Junction. I shortchanged you. Okay. Yeah, I've been in it. So, so you know, that, those first, that first era, like I was mentioning, you know, there were two forms of visibility. There was Google AdWords, pay-per-click, where, you, you know, you were um, paying for, uh, you know, people who were searching for queries on Google. And there was search engine optimization where you were ranking on Google. Um, and it was all search traffic. It was all query-based traffic. And the only brand asset that was available was an email address. We didn't have pixels. You couldn't retarget people. There weren't such things as messenger subscribers. You didn't really have uh, social media fan pages where you could build up audiences. So you, you didn't have any assets other than the email list. So the game was about optimizing your brand so that Google would consider you the most relevant for a given search query and then collecting an email address so you could email people. It was a much simpler time. It was wonderful. It was a great time. The, the problem <laughs> was that you were limited to query-based traffic. I mean, contextual advertising existed in as much as you could run an ad, you know, it was Google, um, it was called the content network back then. You could, which is now the display network, um, you could run an ad to someone, but the only piece of context you had on them was the type of uh, page they were visiting. So if they were on a page about sure. cats, you could run an ad about cats. So it was really hard to make 
contextual advertising work back then, but it was a fun time. It was a, a really wonderful time for e-commerce. Drop shipping didn't exist uh, in China. You couldn't, you know, there was no Alibaba, no AliExpress, none of that stuff. So the way that drop shipping worked was with American suppliers. And I actually got started right around the same time as Wayfair. You know, you're familiar with Wayfair, okay. right? Sure. Wayfair is one of the yeah, biggest yeah. drop shippers in the world, multi-billion dollar a year organization. They started around the same time I did doing the same thing I was doing, which was buying exact match domains like giftbaskets.com and dogsupplies.com, ranking them on Google for relevant, you know, product-based queries, receive, you know, building a Yahoo store so I could receive orders, receiving those orders from people who were searching for those queries, and then uh, faxing an American drop shipper saying, hey, you know, I just got an order for three bar stools and they paid me a hundred bucks. I'm going to pay you 50 bucks and you ship them out. So it was all done via fax and uh, it was great. And you know, at that time I didn't understand delegation. I didn't understand systems and infrastructure. I didn't understand team. And so, you know, at the height of my drop shipping, uh, I only ever had like 12, maybe 20 stores max. Uh, whereas Wayfair had hundreds and they, they were mm -hmm. much more evolved business folks than I was at that time. I was really, really young. I was like 19 or 20. And they, you know, you saw what they scaled it into. So I always felt like I could have been Wayfair if I understood what I understand now, you know? I, I could have, uh, you know, made my dropshipping sort of empire a little bit bigger. As you mentioned, I did, <laughs> I did sell my sort of most profitable dropship company in 2012. It was a costume wig business. I, uh, I hold the record for being America's number one mullet wig retailer in 08 and 09. Um, All right. So that's kind of fun. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I could tell you more about that era, but it was a good era, but it was limited. So what, what are, you know, when, when you look back on that and over the, the last decade plus through, through today, what are some things that have been constant throughout? You know, I, I assume good copy never goes out of style. Dude, I assume nothing you know, has changed. Nothing okay. has changed. Everyone's, oh, you know, I'm too late to the game and everything's <laughs> different every month. It's like, no, here's what you need. Okay. I will give you the recipe for how to be successful in business. You need a truly remarkable product, like good products that are actually going to help people that people like that when they get them, they're happy with. So you got to have product done well and your product has to be good so that when someone gets it, they're happy with it. You got to have good support, which means you need to be reply. You need to be available to be reached via live chat. You need to be available to be reached via the phone. You need to be available to be reached via email. You need to get back to people uh, in business hours within an hour. You need to respond to them. Like mm -hmm. you've got to have super high quality customer support because that is how you end up with repeat business, which is very, very important in e-commerce. And then you need good marketing. That's it. Product, support, and marketing. And marketing has sort of changed a little bit over the years in as much as the traffic sources has ch have changed. Like it was all Google AdWords SEO and now it's all Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and display. I mean, there's a lot of traffic sources now, but like the game has changed, but you've always been able to go to the traffic store and buy traffic. So what do mm -hmm. you need to be good at? Storytelling. And in this day and age, the way you tell stories, it used to be it was search find buy. So where you told your story was on the product page, right? Someone searched for you, mm -hmm. they found your ad or they found your organic listing, they clicked on it and they went to your product page where you did all your selling. Well, now all of the selling is happening higher up in the sales funnel. It's happening via your video ads on Facebook, your video ads on Instagram, your retargeting ads on the display network that lead to articles, right? All the selling is happening before they get to the product page. So what you have to get good at now is telling a story in the context of native social video, which is easier, frankly, than the way that we used to do it, which is you had to tell your story via text and images on a product page where nobody scrolled. So 
Nothing mm -hmm. has changed. I mean, the fundamentals always win, right? You, you, you listen to any Olympic athlete and any Olympic coach, and they're going to tell you, focus on the fundamentals. The fundamentals mm -hmm. win ball games. The fundamentals win. And what the fundamentals are is good amplification, which is not that hard, and good creative, which catches... Look, what you do in a business, I'm just going to give you the formula for business. Yeah, what you are don't. doing is you are communicating with a group of people who are sharing a collective experience. You are then uh, adding value to their life by commenting on that experience through content and providing a solution to a problem that that group of people faces. For example, women over 50 whose hair is graying, whose skin is wrinkling, whose hormone is whom hormones are changing, and everybody's telling them they gotta change that, they gotta stop it, they gotta cover it up, and I've got cosmetics that are about celebrating them as they are now. Uh, drop shippers who want to sell more products uh, via Facebook ads. I'm creating a piece of content here that supports them that then leads to, I mean, in your case, right? Go use Oberlo because it helps you with that problem. You got a group mm -hmm. of people who are collectively sharing an experience and you have a product that solves a problem for that group of people. And you have to engage them, talk to them about the experience they're having, demonstrate the solution you have to their problem and get them to go check out your stuff. That's the game. You have an awesome course in the in the Shopify Academy and in there you, you break down some of your core marketing principles. And number one on the list is be willing to spin. And, and I love that that's number one because it doesn't beat around the bush. You know, the savviest copy or the most intricate targeting at all it all kind of falls apart if people aren't willing to spin. So you've, you know, you've worked with entrepreneurs for years and years. You've been an entrepreneur, you know, for, for years and years. Have you seen an unwillingness to spin kind of hands, handcuffs yeah. people out of the gate? Everybody is so, everybody's misguided in their approach to their business. They're all concerned with what can they get out of it? How much money can I make? What can I pull out? That is short-sighted and that's misguided. The question to ask yourself is what can I invest? Think of it like a garden, right? Where... You, most people are going out, they're trying to spear a fish and they're trying to eat. And that's what dropshipping is, frankly, in my opinion, what most people who are dropshipping are doing. The better analogy is farming. You want to water your garden every day for a year and build assets like pixeled audiences, email addresses, customer databases. And then you want to take all the money that you're making and reinvest it right back into the brand so that the snowball grows. So that by the time you pull from the snowball, it has enough to support you rather you know you, people what happens is people are watering their garden they're watering their garden the seed sprouts it's starting to come up and it's about to break through the sto soil and then they rip it out and try to eat it it's like no <laughs> you got to let it continue to grow and you know let it become an actual mango tree that then can feed you for generations by reinvesting all of the energy from the asset back into itself people want to ball out on instagram and drive lambos and freaking wear funny hats and do all that shit which is fine but it's like, listen, do that once you actually have something that is stable. Like, don't pull from the asset too early, which is what most people are doing. And with advertising, it takes time. It's like a diet or a workout program. You can't start it and stop it. You got to do it every day. You have to be picking amount of money you're going to spend, commit to a year, and spend that money every day, and your assets will grow. And if you don't do that, you're going to end up never getting where you want to go. So I think that, like, just the approach that most people are taking is a completely misguided approach. It's all about what they can get out rather than what they can invest. And you're an advocate of the idea that when you when you spend money on advertising, you're not only spending money to acquire customers, but you're also spending money on data. And, you, and you've mentioned you know the pixel a couple times, and I think that this is you know super important for people to to understand and to keep in mind. Um, 
and this, you know, this idea that you're buying data has come up before on the podcast, and, and I know that it's absolutely true, um, but I could also imagine that, that to someone who's just starting out, maybe uh, it might sound a little nuts. So what would you say to somebody who, who gets a little nervous, uh, a little queasy with the idea that, that they should be okay not generating sales with, with certain ads because really the data that they're getting is just as cool? Let me ask you about any other business model in the world. Do you have to invest before it works? Do you have to go and uh, lease a shop? And then do you have to build that shop out? And then do you have to go and buy all the food that you're going to sell people? And then do you have to go and run ads on Google and run a marketing campaign to get people to come in? Yeah, you got to invest, right? You, people are spoiled in this dropshipping world where they're like, yeah, just turn on the ads and you're going to make sales. Sometimes <laughs> it works that way. More power yeah. to you. But, you know, where else can you take, you know, 500 to $5,000 and invest that in learning a market, learning what people are interested, testing ads, and potentially from that investment have a hundred thousand or more dollar per year business. You don't get mm -hmm. that kind of return anywhere else, and people don't want to spend the five hundred to five grand. And I'm like, okay, you're you're never gonna make it and get out of this business because this isn't for you. You you've got a you've been sold some get rich quick scheme by someone who wanted to take ninety seven dollars from you for some course. It's like, that's mm -hmm. not how it works. You have to understand that the goal in business is to create assets. Because listen, at the end of the day, if you want to talk about wealth creation, you're never going to get there from a cash flow business. Our parents' generation understood wealth creation. Wealth creation, true wealth creation, does not come from operating cash flow businesses. It comes from the liquidation of assets. Our parents' generation understood this, and what they did was they took the money from their 401ks as a generation, they invested it in real estate, they let that asset appreciate, and then they sold those assets to generate real wealth that they could then deploy back into the market for more real estate or buying businesses or trusts or whatever they wanted. Our generation doesn't understand this. Our generation thinks the way that you make money is you run a dropshipping business. And sure, you can make some cash flow, but 85% of the money you'll ever make on a business comes the day you sell it. What, when you sell a business, what are you selling? You're selling the assets that the business has, the customer database, the pixeled audiences, the products, the suppliers, the ad accounts, right? So, so the goal should be to take all the money you're making in your business, reinvest it back into the business so that you're developing the largest asset you possibly can, and then to sell that asset for a one to three multiple of the yearly profit, and then to take that money and use that to buy businesses, build businesses, invest in real estate, do whatever you want. That is how you truly generate wealth. It's not from a cash flow business. Doubling back to Facebook now, I'm curious if you think there's there's any low hanging fruit left when it when it comes to Facebook marketing. I know you like to say that that secrets are truths hiding in plain sight, which is which is a great great way to look at it. But there are so many marketers flocking to Facebook. There's so many eyeballs uh, looking for these these uh, simple truths, and there have been for years and years. And so. It seems like it might be a, a purely efficient system at this point, but, but maybe um, are there any settings or geographies or formats or copy hacks, whatever it might be, uh, that, that people should be, should be testing out in 2020? So I think the thing to understand about Facebook is that each individual is a number in the eyes of Facebook. That's it, just a number. And that number, that profile number, is going to be shown a certain amount of conversion ads, campaigns that are optimized for conversions, a certain amount of ads from campaigns that are optimized for catalog sales, a certain amount of ads from campaigns that are optimized for video views, a certain amount of ads from campaigns that are optimized for page post engagement, a certain amount of ads from campaigns that are optimized for brand awareness, for traffic, etc. Most dropshippers are only running conversion campaigns. Well, what happens is then you only are reaching that person 
40% of the amount you could be reaching them. The CPMs mm. on the other campaign objectives are significantly lower. So you must be spending 20% of your budget on non-conversion focused activities that will like brand awareness, video views, page post engagement, you know, optimization for uh, the lead objective to generate emails because you'll reach more of the same audience that's converting for you with your conversion campaigns for cheaper. The other thing you must do is you must have creative that's optimized for every placement. So you gotta have long form video, short form video, sub 15 second video, uh, you know, sub 120 second video, bigger than 120 second video. You gotta have four by five ratio videos, one by one ratio videos. You gotta have image ads, you gotta have GIF animation ads. Cause again, someone's only gonna see a certain amount of videos, certain amount of images, certain amount of GIFs. So you really have to focus on creative optimization and uh, campaign objective optimization to be successful in 2020. You, you've mentioned video a couple times and, and I know that things are really trending towards video and I'm, I'm wondering how high you think the bar is for, for what's a, you know, a reasonable quality video. I'm spending $22,000 a day on videos that are shot on an iPhone with no <laughs> fancy equipment. Native video okay. is best, natural, uh -huh. real, looks authentic. That is working best for me. It doesn't have to be fancy. Now you you uh, played poker a lot back in the day, and I, and I think this was even before poker was cool, before it was on TV and all of that. And I don't want to uh, I don't want to do too much psychoanalysis here, but uh, do you think that that your background of of playing poker might have helped you in your early e-commerce days? And I know that these things are obviously different, but it seems like having an appetite for for risk and for making educated gambles that that might have served you well uh, when it came to online advertising. You know, I think that one of the things that most entrepreneurs have is a very high risk tolerance. And uh -huh. in order to be a successful poker player, yeah, I came up, you know, playing cards in the New York City underground. I was playing with guys like Vinny DeLimo and Johnny Two-Tone and Joey Cupcakes and guys like that. Uh, <laughs> they called me Johnny, how you doing? Um, long story, but yeah, you know, um, in order to be successful at poker, you gotta have a high risk tolerance. And I think in order to be successful as an entrepreneur, you know, most entrepreneurs, myself included, my risk tolerance is I mean, off the charts different from your average person who's looking for security and um, I'm willing to take risks, big risks. And I think you need to have that to be a successful advertiser or a willingness to stretch in that realm. And if, if that's uncomfortable for you, go get a job and get some security because you know what doesn't have security? Entrepreneurship. You know what has all the pressure in the world? Entrepreneurship because everything mm. is riding on you. Everybody's salaries that you have to pay, the success of the company, all of it, you got no security. You just have your own grit and determination and willingness to continue to show up and move in the direction of your goal with a positive attitude. And like, it's gonna be intense. You're the end of the, you're gonna be the end of the line for everything. Everything's gonna be riding on your shoulders and you're gonna have to push all your chips in when you're not 100% sure quite often and make those calculated risks. And so, yeah, I mean, I think risk tolerance is a big factor when it comes to entrepreneurship. And so there's no there's no setup where, where you can be both an entrepreneur you trying, use to, trying to make things happen money. and you could use okay. someone else's <laughs> okay. money that that sure. helps these venture backed uh -huh. companies they're all going out of business casper and brand list because they were using someone else's money and they didn't care you know uh -huh. i like using my own money because then i really really care um uh -huh. and you know yeah listen as look as you scale you start to understand things like the cushion right so for example i think that you're not safe unless you have two years of liquidity for your life. So let's say that you and your family live on $100,000 a year 
after taxes. That's what you, you know, feed your family with, pay for your health care, pay for your, you know, mortgage. Uh, you know, let's just say, I mean, that's pretty high for most families. But let's say you live on 100 grand a year after taxes. You need 200 grand liquid in a bank account so that if you, if shit hit the fan, you had two years to re rebuild. And most people are operating on a uh, 15 to 45 day window of liquidity in their bank account. And most people are actually operating. If you look at the, I'm talking about you know, people in our community who are entrepreneurs who have money and stuff, but those folks only have a 15 to 45 day window of liquidity uh, at any given time for the most part. And most people don't have any, they're negative mm -hmm. in debt. So, so I yeah. think that from a personal standpoint, one way to um, fortify yourself is to have personal liquidity in case you get sick or something goes down. And then you also want to have business liquidity where you've got 12 months of operating capital at any given time in your business bank account. So 12 months of what inventory costs, 12 months of what staff salary costs, 12 months of what advertising costs. And there's almost no business out there who has that. Most businesses are operating on a 30 to 60 day uh, liquidity um, you know, cushion. And so if you want to you know, lighten the load on yourself and you wanna play the long game and you start to understand finances, then you, you increase your liquidity windows in the direction of having a cushion for things not going the way that you hope they go, which happens in business. It's up and down. So, you know, that's one way to do it. I do that and uh, I'm very fiscally responsible in that way. And it's one of the reasons why I can be so aggressive. You've talked and, and written about burnout and, and you've, you've said this is the most common reason you know, people fail in business. And, and you have a, a great quote where you say the game is about consistency, not intensity. And I, I'm curious where that mindset comes from and if that's something you had to learn the hard way or if this is, um, you know, that was just your, your approach from day one. Well, I've, I've seen it happen to so many friends of mine. Yeah, I've been in this industry since 2005. And the most common thing that, that I see happen is entrepreneurs burn out. They overwhelm themselves with too much cycles, too many cycles. They don't take care of their physical body. They don't take care of their mental body. They don't have a social life. They don't focus on their relationships. They put all their energy into their business. And then they um, associate their own value as a person with the success of the business. And so they, their identity is wrapped up in the business success. And then if the business isn't going well, they are miserable and unhappy and feel worthless. And they don't have anything in their life outside of business. And then because they're, you know, they're sacrificing for their family and whatever bullshit they're telling themselves, but then they're not <laughs> showing up for their family because they're overworked, overwhelmed. They haven't taken care of their body. They haven't put any attention on their social life or their relationship. So by the time they get home, they're an empty cup and they got nothing to pour from. And I've mm -hmm. just seen it happen so much. And I got lucky. I became an entrepreneur when I was, I've always been an entrepreneur, but I started my own business when I was 19. And so I've been in the game. And so all those years where I was grinding, I was young and I had the energy for it and I didn't have any responsibility. And I learned in my early 20s after seeing it happen, I was like, man, you know, I really need to invest in my life outside of this business because I can see the trappings of, you know, it's digital. I can think about it all the time. I can't escape it because I can put attention right. on it anytime I want. I've got yeah. to set clear boundaries around my work life or this is gonna take over my entire world. And look, sometimes that's gotta happen because you're running launches and stuff like that. But if the backdrop of your life is 24 hours a day business, you're gonna burn out and it's not gonna work out for you. And look, I'm playing the long game. There's a reason why I you know, am making $30 million a year in revenue 15 years in. I'm doing the best I've ever done. I've got, uh, you know, I'm happy. I've got a, a social life. I'm taking care of my body. I'm investing in my relationship. There's a reason why I'm doing all that because, because that's actually the best thing you can do for the business, in, in, in addition to I want to enjoy my life and not just be a workaholic, it actually ultimately serves my goal of 
then I have energy for the business. Then I, I'm forced to learn to delegate because I can't do it all myself. It's like the best thing you could possibly do is invest in your personal life, invest in your relationships, invest in your social life, take care of your body, set borders around your work. You think that it's going to hold you back, but it actually turns out after eight hours in a day, your product productivity drops by like 180%. So mm -hmm. it actually turns out that if you're putting in six to eight hours a day, four or five days a week, that's plenty. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like it's in the best interest of the long game, which is what I'm playing. I want to be doing this for another 10 years, another 15 years, another 20 years. And in order to achieve that, to really build something of value, I need to be able to show up every day consistently with a positive attitude, uh, with energy and take the next step in the direction of my goal. I'm not sprinting and people who sprint fall apart. And mm -hmm. I don't want to fall apart. All right. We teased it at the beginning and now I'll, I'll get you out of here. This let's double back around to Facebook where we started and, and we talked about what you were excited about then. And, and let's talk about what you're nervous about now when it comes to, to Facebook and Instagram and maybe nervous isn't the, isn't the right word, but what's something that you see bubbling up that you think might cause a few headaches uh, if people aren't ready to adapt? Well, I think it's the same thing I told you about, which is creative. Like I'm nervous about having to continue to optimize creative. It's hard. It takes time. Yeah. It takes energy. It takes effort. It's just, it's wonderful because it's doable, but it's also nerve wracking because if you don't do it, you're going to fall apart, you know, whereas before you just had to optimize audiences and that was a lot easier and placements and stuff like that. I also think that uh, too much of a reliance on Facebook is bad. So in mm -hmm. 2018, I was 95.5 Facebook to Google. In 2019, I was 75.25 Facebook to Google. And in 2020, I'm 60.40. So I'm investing a lot in YouTube, okay. a lot in the Google Display Network, a lot in Google Search, a lot in Gmail, right? because I wanna have some level of diversity off of Facebook. Makes sense. All right, Ezra, we can leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If you wanna check out more from Ezra Firestone, go to smartmarketer.com. He's also got videos on YouTube and, and you know good stuff in, in various corners yeah, of the internet. Yeah, and one, one so, quick uh, thing I will say is if you're a drop shipper, go to, and you're on Shopify, um, check out Zipify pages, Z-I-P-I-F-Y. Uh, it's a landing page builder I made for Shopify and it will increase your conversions considerably. All right, cool. Ezra, thank you so much. Hey man, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right, David here again. Thank you once more to Ezra Firestone and thank you too as well for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to listen to more episodes of Start Yours, you can find them anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find them over at overload.com, which is where you can discover lots of goodies about e-commerce, dropshipping, entrepreneurship, anything in this realm. We probably have a blog post, maybe even an ebook that covers exactly that. Overload is also on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So reach out to us there or shoot an email to podcast at overload.com. We will talk to you soon.